voyage of intellectual self-discovery. You're listening to another episode of the In the Driveway podcast. Intellectual yet stimulating. All the topics you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table. Politics, economics, religion. You know happen under the stars with your bros. So crack open a cold one. Blaze up if you've got one. And join your hosts, Chad and Dustin, in the driveway. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of In the Driveway. It's Dustin here with my buddy Chad once again. And What's up? You know, talking about some more economics shit. Uh, how, how have you been getting by up there, Chad? Is it as cold up there as it is down here this last week? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been the negatives. Um, not a lot of snow, but it's been uh, like negative eight consistently for the past couple of days. So I've been very cold, but around, roads around here have been just uh, ridiculous. We've been having uh, rolling blackouts and everything for the last few days and stuff, man. I'm super excited for our conversation tonight, and I kind of want to just go ahead and jump on into yeah, that tonight. We've in. got a we got a special guest. Uh, uh, Charles Hayden uh, is here with us. He's here to uh, talk to Chad about some MMT stuff. Uh, I was hoping maybe Charles could provide some better answers than what I've been able to give Chad uh, in the past. Um, and I'm hoping Chad has some good questions for our buddy Charles here. Um, Charles, what's going on, man? Hey, what's up, brother? Uh, yeah, hopefully I could be of service tonight. Yeah, I'm hoping to hoping to learn a few things today. Um, well, real quick, I just wanted to, before we really get into the details of it, um, I was just curious, how did you like get involved with MMT originally? Like, what what happened that got you into MMT? So it's kind of a blur, um, but I think around 2007, Joe Firestone, who's a, a MMT. Um, advocate um he was blogging on daily i always say it wrong daily costs daily coasts i don't even know and um you know liberal blog and um i think i saw something that warren mosler had done or l randall ray something they had done with dennis kucinich and um and i thought dennis at the time i thought dennis kucinich was a crazy person and it all sounded crazy to me um, you know, like, what is this communist nonsense? Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And then, uh, just, you know, I kept seeing it on the internet, um, a little bit. And then in 2009, I think after the election, you know, Warren Mosler actually started to go to tea party events and he called himself a tea party Democrat. And, um, I listened to one of his events and, it, you know, I was confused because there's a guy I thought I was, was a communist and he's talking about tax cuts and supporting the private sector and um, making the, you know, make sure the government's not strangling businesses and workers and, and consumers. And it didn't make sense. Like, you know, so I started just reading, 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 and he had the blog going on. And I, I don't think, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I really was paying attention to the blog until uh, like 2010, I saw it. I remember reading it in 2009, but 2010, 2011, I was really interested in what happened in the financial crisis. I didn't know what a mortgage-backed security was in 2008. I didn't know any of this stuff. And um, uh, just saw it, you know, was following the blog. And I just started asking Warren questions on the blog. And somehow we got, got connected on Facebook. I started messaging him on Facebook. And um, 
I was lost. I didn't know. And I mean, I followed the readings, I followed the video, but like stuff would just miss a lot of stuff. The banking side of MNT was very confusing to me in the beginning. And uh, Warren being a hedge fund guy, I was also kind of like, you know, is he telling me this stuff because it's going to make up rich or like, I, you know, I kept thinking that he had some sort of personal agenda in this. Right. See, that's, it's funny you say that because that's kind of the sense that I get from everything I get from Chad's sources. Every time he sends me something to watch, it's like this guy's trying to sell me Bitcoin or some financial asset or something like that. So feel like a lot of times we get into a, a stalemate because I'm, I'm not sure whether I can listen to this source or not. You know? <laughs> well, um, um, so what was your, your economic situation, like your, your economic philosophy before MMT? Did you, did you really uh, have one yet? Or is this like your first? Uh, so I think I was more like a Clinton new Democrat. I didn't really like economics. I, I was just like, you know, just sound whatever the Republicans are saying is probably right, but like maybe we can help people a little bit too. I'll, you think you, you think uh, you're more like a, those, uh, uh, are, like would you say you were like sort of on the Bernie Sanders side of things? Uh, no, I, no. I, yeah, I didn't know who Bernie was back then, and uh, I would have, uh, you know, I was I was always hippie punching um, people on the left. Um, you know, I was always like, yeah, we got to stop, you know, Democrats need to be less liberal, more conservative. Because uh, basically all my friends, you know, like my family was Democrat, but like all my friends, my surroundings, you know, it was all Republican, conservative. And I guess okay. it was trying to reconcile that. And So uh, you weren't really like, uh, you know, Marxist, socialist, communist. You're not coming from that side of things. You're kind of middle of the road. No, I mean, uh, I um, I don't know. I might, there's been times in my life where I've read a little socialism and anarchism and stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's interesting. That's cool. But, um, it's, it's just not, you know, it's, it's, uh, what's the word? It's, it's more practical. <laughs> MMT. Yeah. More practical about things. Um, especially now, you know, um, you know, I'm an adult, I'm 38. I got a three-year-old. I got a mortgage, I got a house student loans to pay, you know, um, I'm not, uh, you're young, you're, you know, frankly, people, young people are crazy <laughs> when they first get involved in politics. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. It's hard to say what I thought before I learned MMT. And this is, there's a, there's a blog uh, about it. It's like MMT is kaleidoscopic or something. I don't know if that's a word, but it's this idea that you know, once you kind of go through it, it's hard to look at the world the same way again. And he used to warn people. He used to say, like, hey, this is going to ruin your life. Um, he told Mike Norman that um, some, you know, sometime like 2004, 2005, whenever they first met. He did a Mike Norman used to have a TV show or something, a blog show, like in the beginning, like before 2008. And Warren appeared one time. And yeah, so yeah, MMT should come with that warning, though. In all honesty, I did not get that warning from Warren, and uh, I want my life back. But um, so, what what would you say? Your life. What is it about MMT that is that is so a appealing? Um, it seems like, it, from my perspective, it seems like it's kind of like um, the government has the ability to 
do so many things for people and it's just not doing it. And MMT is like, but why not? We should be doing all these things for people. And, and people have all these ideas of all these great things that the government could be doing if it just listened to Warren Mosler. Is that the main appeal? Is that why it took over your life? Or is what is the main reason why it's so appealing? I mean, I, I get what you're saying, but you know, only I would just say that MMT is not a, it's a, it's a way of viewing. It's, it's a lens. It's um, it itself doesn't say any, you know, do anything. Right. Um, it's a series of observations yeah, on the accounting side of yeah, the federal government. government. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we were dealing with, uh, you know, that, that recovery, um, Obama recovery, and especially in 2010, I mean, there wasn't much of a recovery at that point. It was, it was still pretty stagnant. Um, you know, the, the, the financial crisis, the leftover of that, um, foam the runways approach. Um, you know, uh, one, one of the things that got me really involved in actually trying to like do stuff was I, uh, I, I watched, uh, William K. Black's Occupy LA speech. Um, and that was like, in that was truly like, during the Occupy Wall Street movement, and um, um, kind of, you know, I was I was interested in the Occupy Dallas thing. I went down there like the first day, and I, you know, bought water for people, and I brought snacks, and you know, but um, um, you know, I, I had a I had a job. I'm you know, I had to work. I was in school, so I wasn't gonna you know spend a night in in, in a tent. Uh, my wife, my now wife, wouldn't have liked that. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, later on after the encampment had been dispersed, a, a, a group of, of people kind of continued on with that Occupy Dallas label and, um, just kind of wanted to reach out to them, see what they're about, you know, kind of spread some of this knowledge I had in my head. Um, but yeah, it was kind of like, it was actually William K. Black's Occupy LA speech. And he just kind of went through the, um, uh, what happened in the financial crisis, um, you know, in 2008 versus what happened with the savings and loan crisis. And so let's actually talk about that for just a second. What um, exactly do, uh, well, what kind of things was he saying about the financial crisis? Like where did, what is the, is there like uh, some observations that that were drawn that most people don't think about? Yeah. I mean, now, you know, I'm, I'm a student of Warren. I'm a student of William K. Black. They don't, and this is true amongst uh, a lot of uh, MMT economists. They, you know, may not agree 100% on every single little point, right? And Warren's point is, is that, um, yeah, there was fraud, but that itself did not cause the recession. Um, it, it, it was the, the, the size of government deficit got too low. The economy was being overtaxed given the savings demands. And with the given credit expansion, which which had collapsed, right? And it collapsed because of, there was fraud and it froze. But um, you know, um, you know, they, when people started to lose their jobs, now they couldn't pay, pay their mortgages, right? And that's what caused the the, the 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 crisis. But there was fraud, and there was fraud on the up, and fraud works on the up. Um, so long, you know, until it's discovered, right? Um, you know, Bernie Madoff was doing great until it was discovered he was committing fraud. But um, um, what was your question? How? Hold on, get out of here. <laughs> what were what were what were some of the lessons that we maybe learned, or some of the observations right. that we learned from that that we can um, apply, or uh, that we can view through the MMT lens to see uh, 
um, what we might do different. Allow, or... if, if you allow fraud in the credit expansion, it creates a sort of um, mirage that you know the uh, and and once that once it's discovered, um, and, and, it, and if it's discovered in a um, you know in short order where all of a sudden some major large fraud is discovered, like in 2007, you know, all of a sudden now these, these uh, holders of uh, mortgage-backed securities all over the world are discovering that mortgages in these portfolios are trash and uh, way overvalued. And, um, it, you know, if you allow that to happen, um, it'll work on the up to in increase total spending, sales, employment. Uh, but once it collapses and stops, and that credit expansion stops, um, you know, you, you've got to make fiscal adjustments. You got to cut taxes or increase government spending. And, um, you know, if you cut taxes, you, you, you know, you kind of got to overshoot it a little because some of the tax cut is going to be saved. Uh, if you do government spending, you know, that has its own set of problems. Um, but yeah, the government has to make fiscal adju adjustments time to time. Um, you know, when, when, uh, if there's so a, go ahead. So one of the things that, that uh, the Austrian school that Chad um, studies from is, uh, you know, they don't like government spending. They don't like government debt. They don't like. Um, they don't like credit expansion. But I don't really know what the Austrian school has to say about private debt or credit specifically. Like, uh, what is the opposing view between the two on that, Chad? Um, so it's, it's similar. Um, I think the Austrian position would be that the credit expansion, um, itself was the issue that, you know, it causes the, the illusion of a boom in the economy and then the, ex the expansion can't continue expanding. And once it starts to contract, um, people lose their jobs, people can't repay their loans, the banking system essentially collapses. So it's it's a, a similar story, but I think the Austrian position on um, like the 2008 crisis is that the Federal Reserve and the government um, were complicit in that credit expansion. So they, you know, the Federal Reserve and the government were allowing these banks to you know, have access to all this money to loan out to people who they should not have been giving loans to. And they were probably taking on that amount of risk because they knew at the end of the day, if everything collapsed, that they would just get bailed out by the government or the Federal Reserve, which they got bailed out by both. And so the Austrian position is like, first of all, the Austrians are, are against fractional reserve banking, which is an expansion of the money, money supply through credit. And it's, it's always unsustainable. So the expansion of the money supply created by all this debt eventually has to contract back to a, a more normal level. But the, so are, are you talking private debt or yeah, federal private debt? debt? Private okay. Debt. You're talking private debt. Okay. So yeah, yeah just, that's just the a, banking system itself, even without so a Char central bank. So Charles, I, I believe I heard um, maybe Warren Mosler, maybe it was, Randy Ray, um, talking about uh, essentially monetary policy is lending 
and fiscal policy policy is spending, right? Or is that uh, sort of? I mean, lending is spending to acquire financial assets, and and uh, we, you know, just to back up a second, you know, we we don't have a fractional reserve system. That's for a fixed exchange regime. Uh, we're on a floating, free-floating currency. Uh, bank credit is uh, unlimited and it is subject to the credit worthiness of the borrowers, right? And, it, you know, it is the case that banks are agents of the government in this process. Um, this, is, this is explicit in, in the sense of the, um, uh, you know, uh, anti-terror and, and uh, money laundering kind of rules. The government needs the banks to kind of, you know, file criminal referrals and, you know, uh, alert them to when, you know, uh, terrorists are, you know, moving money in the banking system. Um, and, and um, you know, and that, that, that's the thing with Austrianism, like, and, and Austrians are all, you know, kind of all, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's like socialists, they come in varieties. Um, but uh, typically, yeah, the problem there is they, they're, they're talking about things on a fixed exchange system. And we're on a floating system. So it's like trying to program a DVR with a VCR manual. Well, um, so I, I do get that we're not currently on a fractional reserve system. The reason I brought up the fractional reserve system is because I think the Austrian position is the way that we got to the point we're at now goes all the way back to the introduction of the fractional reserve system. Right now, it's even worse, arguably, than a fractional reserve system because the bank's can essentially create as much credit and give out as many loans as they want. And the loan itself is what creates the, uh, the backing for it. It's, it's what creates the deposits that are supposed yeah. to be the reserves. Blah, loans blah, blah. create deposits. Right. Loans create deposits. Loans create deposits. That's new. I mean, that's only, that's only since 1971. If you go back to before the Federal Reserve, it was a fractional reserve system that caused a boom and then a bust. And then the way that they decided to resolve the problems caused by fractional reserve was to create the central bank as the lender of last resort. And that worked until the gold standard got in the way. To resolve that, they then removed the gold standard. And now we're here at a purely fiat, non-backed, non-fractional reserve system, which has even more problems, arguably. So the domestic gold window closed 1933. It's like one of FDR's first 100 days or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, they went moved into a system of Bretton Woods, right, which is yeah. basically, um, you know, for, foreigners who got dollars could then exchange the dollars. Uh, we, we had an international gold window, right? right. Yep. And so we don't want to run trade surpluses, or excuse me, we don't want to run trade deficits because we don't want foreigners to get their hands on dollars that they can convert to gold. Right. But, you know, bank credit at that point in domestically is still, you know, it's it's not that much different than what we have today. Right. It, it, yeah. Um, so yeah, internationally, it was essentially fractional reserve with the Federal Reserve being the holder well, of the reserves. Yeah. Of the gold. The so, gold. Yep. And and um, and then France we ran and trade surpluses, though, like that's the thing. We, we were running trade surpluses for most of that time until the, we got in, we ran into problems in the late 70s with the, uh, the first, uh, oil crisis. I don't remember what Middle Eastern war preceded it, but, um, you know, so they, they closed, they closed that off and, uh, that enabled the trade deficits that we saw, um, 20, 30 years later. Right. Um, and that, that actually, be, that was a big part of the problem in 2008 is that, 
uh, we had this this domestic credit expansion, this mirage that that worked on the up, and you know Bush, you know Bush two economy wasn't that terrible. Incidentally, Warren worked on the Bush two tax cuts. Um, he he met with uh, Andy Card, uh, who was the chief of staff of the Bush White House, and uh, kind of coached him on it. And they were all worried about the deficit. And two weeks after um, Warren met with the, uh, the the White House, um, we heard Bush. Um, he's asked of um, you know well, the deficit, blah blah blah, and, and and he utters the quote, "I don't I don't worry about numbers on pieces of paper. I worry about jobs." And that's pretty close to functional finance, you know, and hearing that from a Republican president, maybe he doesn't understand all the various political implications. Uh, but yeah, that's all we're saying. Worry about jobs, worry about price stability. Um, you know, and, and um, well, yeah, that's, that's funny because I, I do have a different perspective because I'm I'm super into Bitcoin and previously into gold. So I'm into like a deflationary monetary system. and in that system you're not focused on jobs you're focused on getting to the point where they have enough wealth that they don't need to work anymore and um that essentially helps people that need the jobs because there's less people competing for those jobs um so yeah i I guess it's like an it's it's kind of an opposite outlook on it um, yeah, I don't want to give everybody a job. I want to get to the point where people can accumulate savings to the point where they can retire and not be looking for, not be reliant on a job anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah, but somebody's got to work, right? <laughs> got to make the stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's what we're always sure telling these people UBI people, work. the universal basic income people. It's like, look, you're 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 making three promises that you know you can't keep all of them. Right. Um, somebody's got to work. Somebody's got to do the job. And um, yeah, well, right now we don't have a problem of like, you know, too many jobs and not enough people available to do the work. We have the opposite problem where there's too many people that need a job and there's not enough work to give people. You got all these people that are homeless, that are jobless, that are, you know, they can't make ends meet even with their job. I think it'd be a much better problem if the the workforce itself was like you know people straight out of high school and people that really need a job and because there's not so many people competing for those jobs they can actually make a living wage off of it and accumulate a savings with the money that increases in value over time to the point where they can retire at 35 or 40 or whatever uh, well, um <laughs> so might need to slow that slow that back again but um uh you know people i don't know people gotta work man you know you're you're 18 years old and you're able-bodied this society expects you to work well it just seems strange to me that a a (laughs) a a, an economic uh outlook that's so concerned about inflation isn't that worried about making putting people to work to make production you know yeah i mean i'm just i don't see right now we don't have the problem you know we have we have so many people in need of jobs just to survive to me it just seems like a much better situation 
if people have a much higher standard of living and they don't have to work as much. Well, I'm not saying that there's, we're going to get to the point where lives. nobody nobody <laughs> needs to work. Right. Obviously, there's going to be people that have to work, but they're going to be well paid for their work because the workforce will be smaller. And the people that did their work when they were younger can retire earlier and enjoy their lives and leisure and do artwork and all the things that we want to do in our life. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't see that as a reduction in production. And honestly, I think a lot of the things that people do today for work is kind of like bullshit jobs that is, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're talking about wanting people to be able to save and, you know, wouldn't getting people out of these enormous private debts be a giant step towards allowing them to do exactly that? And also, wouldn't it free them up to be able to spend and get us out of this kind of deflationary pool that we're kind of seeing right now? Well, another thing, sorry, Dustin, that's a good question. Um, but Chad, so like, you know, you have these retirees, right? And they have this pool of savings. Well, you know, spending equals incomes, right? So like in order for these this other group of people to have these these high incomes, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to come at least partially from the spending of these retirees that you're talking about. And you know, sure. I don't know how you get higher wages to to the working class, or this, this. I guess that's what they are. They're the working class, and this is the retired class. Mm -hmm. Um, without price increases, right? Like they're gonna, you know, you're talking about less people working, <laughs> um, to to make the same amount of stuff to support. Now, now I, I mean, you know, I can, you know, the way to get to that society, right, is, you know, by having a government that uh serves public purpose and makes the proper investments in 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 the society and in infrastructure education technology i mean see, i don't i don't know why those retirees couldn't make the same or better investments because well, than, than the government could not profitable but it has to happen in the r&d process trial and error right and the government is the only one in a position to kind of do that i mean there's a reason that you know, the iPhone, the internet, the, all this computer crap. I mean, all of it comes back to originally government investments in some sort of, you know, the space program. Um, and, 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 and we end up with these, these derivative products that, that resulted some, from some initial discovery that came from um, government spending or government investment. And, and, and there's a, uh, you should read Entrepreneurial State by uh, Mariana, Mas I can never say her last name, Mascazudu. Um, she's friends with Pavlina. Um, I mentioned her to Warren Mosler. I had, or not Warren Mosler. I mentioned her to Mark Cuban. I had to have Pavlina pronounce her last name. Um, but really smart book. And um, uh, she does not come to that opinion ideologically. She's, she traces the, the, the action. She, she's researched the investments that led to these private sector breakthroughs, like the iPhone. Um, you know, the Internet's a great example. Uh, but Well, yeah, I mean... I think that is the case now, um, but in the the late nineteenth century, when we were using gold as money, that's when you know, like the elect electricity was invented and the automobile was invented and all these different kind of things. And I think that has something to do with the fact that with a deflationary currency like gold, people are incentivized to save it and accumulate capital, and then invest it and they don't necessarily have to invest it in something that earns a return 
if you have enough savings, then you can afford to spend some of it on something that's just an ideological thing that you think would be good for society. Whereas right now, in our current situ situation for the last hundred years, you're right. The only people that are really in that position is the government or like Elon Musk or somebody. But I don't think in a I deflationary mean, system that encourages savings rather than debt, I think you would have a, a lot more people that are in the general population that have the, the amount of capital needed to, to make those kinds of investments without having to turn to the government. Remember, in, in savings, though, the mirror image is, is, is a deficit. So somebody's running deficits, whether it's the government or other entities in the private sector. So I guess in your example, it would be some mix of the workers you know, running deficits, mortgages, credit cards, student loans, and the government. And then, you know, this, this, this saving class, this, this retired class um, that would support their, their savings desires. And, um, you know, that's a um, big, big point of MMT, right? And, and, you know, it goes back to the thirties concept of the uh, paradox of thrift. And um, going back to the whole thing about 2008 with the credit expansion just falling, falling off a cliff, um, immediately, you know, tax revenue starts falling, um, the, the automatic stabilizers start going out, and, you know, people start trying to hold on to money and save, right? And their savings attempts are actually decreasing sales, leading to less savings. And, um, and, and so like, you know, like, I'm not saying like your plan is terrible or anything. I mean, I don't know, but I'm not going to say it's terrible, but like you could use MMT to help get you there. Right. You're talking well, about so your class. Um, your, your, uh, response there to me. So, so yeah, I, I agree with you that in our, our current system, the people trying to save, creates this deflationary pressure <clears throat> that reduces spending that results in a depression or a recession. Less savings overall. Less savings. Yeah, less savings overall. Less right, but I think that's that's because we live in an inflationary system that basically runs on we have to keep spending more and more, consuming more and more, borrowing more and more for it to continue on the path that it's on, which is essentially that bubble created by the credit expansion. and any hiccup in that causes this this huge problem because the entire banking system is going to be threatened to fail well, I think, if the if the loans can't be repaid well chad i think that um well what were you just saying you were just saying okay so i think that like uh the problem isn't the inflation it's i think it's the fact that wages aren't pegged to anything to make it keep up with inflation. And so people keep getting further and further behind because their wages aren't keeping up. So if wages kept up with the inflation, then I don't, I, why wouldn't that be um, kind of a, a, a balancer or equalizer for the, um, well, I mean, wages do not keep up with inflation. So that's right. Yeah. So, so right now, that's, that's just not the case. Well, what right. well, inflation? Have we talked about that yet? I don't think we have. No, not yet. <laughs> so, you know, um, all right. So the way Warren says it, 
it's like a function, right? So is is uh, the you know the price level is a function of the prices the government pays when it spends, or the collateral it demands when it lends. And you're going back to this whole government. Uh, the banks are agents of the government, right? Um, you know, and, and and the way I always say it is, you know, you have banks, and I put that in quotation marks because some people are weird. And, you know, when I'm talking about a bank, I'm talking about an agent of the government. Everything else, shadow lending. And some of the banks may actually engage in shadow lending, but shadow lending is the taking of a deposit uh, and, and lending. It's like me lending you a $5 bill out of my wallet, right? That's shadow lending. Um, that is not bank lending, you know, in quotation marks. But um, so, you know, the, 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 the collateral demanded when, when, when uh, government lends, right? Um, you know, when you have this, this run up in housing prices, right? You know, we saw collateral fall <laughs> for borrowers. Um, so, you know, like I, I think if you look at every major inflationary episode, you can kind of, you know, I think Warren's way of looking at it holds. Even in the 70s with the, the oil price hikes by the four monopolists, you know, the government agreed to pay those prices. You know, if they had to, though, right? It's not, you know, they weren't going to not have import oil. You know, the army would have been stranded, but. Um, um, you know, but still, if the government does not validate those those price increases, um, you know, by sellers, then you know, um, the, the inflation doesn't happen. Um, so, you know, and the way to think about it, like, all right, you know, say, you know, whatever government spent on last year, you know, they're to the penny, they're they say, okay, this year we're not going to spend anything more to the penny. And if one seller tries to increase a price, we're not going to spend anything. And the sellers can say, all right, screw you. You know, we're just not going to sell to you unless you agree to our prices. Well, guess what will happen? There won't be any government spending. There's still going to be these tax liabilities coming. Uh, and, and some of our income tax is imputed tax. It's not necessarily income you received in dollars. Um, you know, they, you know, like you um capital gains and whatever like you know it's imputed it's assumed that you've 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 earned income or equivalent income anyways um uh damn i'm losing my train of thought here sorry guys um well i think we started out talking about different kinds of inflation is that yeah what what you know you got to define inflation though well I i can tell you how i see it now um, so just taking the, the housing market as an example, so the housing market, obviously the prices of houses are going astronomical. Um, and the process, as far as I see it is the people selling the houses are able to ask a, uh, a high price. And whereas people usually would not be able to buy it, they can essentially get a loan for whatever amount they want at the moment for like 1% interest or, you know, very small interest rates. And the banks are willing to make those loans because they're government backed home loans. And because they're essentially loaning money that they create out of thin air. So it's not really a risk on their part. And they're also backed by the government in the sense that if those loans go bad, they will be bailed out. So the result is these banks are willing to give these giant loans to people who really can't afford the house. And the people are willing to buy a house that they really can't afford because they're able to get these loans at 
ridiculously low interest rates. And the result is for the rest of us that don't have houses, the prices of houses are going astronomical. So that's like a, a clear line of inflation, price inflation that's coming from backing no, but, from the government and the Federal Reserve. But Chad, inflation has been at about 2% for the last 30 years. Like houses right now should be at around $297,000 adjusted for inflation. But the reality of it is they're going for around 400000 now, what in your view, like explains that? Sure. Know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, what explains that to me is that the government, the spending that is being generated by government backing is being funneled into the housing market. It's not evenly distributed throughout the entire consumer price index. So uh, all the places that you see government backing, government spending, like healthcare, university, housing market. Those things where all that government money is being pumped into are the things that are going to increase in price first. I think that's just an example of the monopoly supplier of the currency setting the prices based on what they're willing to pay. If they decided they're going to pay less, then those prices would go down. Right, Charles? Am I? I mean, I mean, it's um, how many subdivisions do you see getting built? You know, single family home subdivisions. I mean, it is falling off a cliff. We're not adding to the housing supply. You know, we got more people looking for houses. Housing supply is flat. I mean, what they do now, they build luxury apartments. That's all they build around here. I mean, you go out to Carroll, there's freaking luxury apartment buildings on the side of the highway, down to Waxahachie. Luxury apartment buildings. Um, you know, because they, they can make more money off those types of buildings, even at lower occupancy rates, right? I mean, I'm guessing. I don't know. But um, yeah, I, I have problems with the housing market and okay, fine. You want to tighten standards. Okay, cool. I'm, I'm all right with that. Um, the loans that the banks make though, they have to fit in a box that's designed by Congress, right? And uh, the government backed loan, FHA, whatever, you know, um, the, the banks are supposed to be in a position of verifying credit worthiness. Obviously, they do not do that in the run-up to the financial crisis. Um, but, you know, now we have truth in lending. We've got the, you know, the Fed asserted powers and it held under a HOEPA that it refused to acknowledge um, until after the financial crisis. You know, that, that, that seems to be standard. I don't see a whole lot of fraud, in other words, in the housing markets. Um, there might be on the... Uh, um, investor side because you can still get a stated income loan for an investment property now is it, is it like it was in 2007 and 8 and probably not um stated income loans or liars loans as they were referred to behind closed doors um they're really supposed to be designed for uh folks that um you know either they don't they don't get a regular consistent paycheck maybe they're self-employed um, or it's, they have a, you know, long-standing relationship with the bank and they need to close on this loan and it's Friday and it's almost, you know, it's, it's getting late. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that was originally the, the design of these, these stated income loans. Um, and, uh, um, you know, in the two, 2000, 
you know, really 2003 all the way to 2007, they were used to, you know, um, you know, 40% of home loans made in, in uh, what, 2006 were, were, you know, quote unquote, liars loans. Um, they, they were able to get share, market share. And, um, and, and um, so, so, yeah, yeah, I don't know exactly where housing prices fit into the Fed CPI index and all that stuff. Confuses the hell out of me. Um, you I know, they, don't think they're included at all. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they are either. Right. Um, and th- another thing about asset price inflation is in a in an environment with um, you know zero percent base interest rates, right? Which you know they're not exactly zero, but um, and certainly the, the interest rates that are paid by more mortgage borrowers are zero. But um, you know, time. Are you familiar with? Um, discounting future cash flows so 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 with positive interest rates right your future cash flow the, the present value is is worth less um you know at, at if the interest rate is one percent than if the interest rate is worth zero and yeah. so the lower interest rates do have this this thing of propping up asset prices and you know compared to uh, um um, what where they would be if the discount factor, you know, was a positive number, right? Um, and th- this I see more, and I don't know. I, I think I truly believe this is. You see this with stocks, um, but with you know company valuations, right? You know, you have to discount the expected future cash flows of these firms to to value them at their present value. Um, you know, with with with, with home lending though. Um, the problem, the, 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 first of all, like, you know, you, you still got to have a good credit score to get, get the home loan. Right. Um, even they're, they're low, but you know, the fact is, is like, it's, you know, it's hard to find people that qualify, you know, for a $200,000 mortgage. Right. It's almost, you know, there might be more of them, but they're easier to find people that can qualify at the 300,000 level. Right. Um, so so yeah, there's this, you know, intense competition for these lower priced houses. Like when me and my wife were buying our home, we put about 13 offers out, I think. And um, we got into competitive or multi, uh, what is it? Multi, multi-offer situations, um, like virtually every time. And, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of times it's these investors coming in with cash, right? You know, paying over, they're going to turn into a rental property. And, uh, maybe they have their, already have their own mortgage to, 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 to buy the home with. Um, but yeah, I don't see this as like a problem of like government deficit spending. Um, you know, it's a problem of public policy. Like, you know, we're not putting the right resources towards promoting um, affordable housing. We're not building any homes. Well, I mean, from, from my perspective, flat, more people are buying and, and, um, and we like that, right? Homeowners are voters. They see their asset increase, and it's the number one asset for most people, right? Because it's appreciable. Um, they see their asset improving. They're they're they they feel more comfortable. They they feel like they can spend more money, and they're happier. And we see all the indicators in the consumer confidence and you know business confidence numbers. Um, and so I think I think it's a uh, uh, you know uh, there's a symbiosis there. Like we you know. Homeowners are happy. Um, 
people trying to get into that homeowner situation, they're screwed. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, they tend to be lower income. They tend to not vote, you know, so it's, it's something that's just kind of allowed to continue um, as is because there's no real force to kind of rock the boat, right? Yeah, uh, Dustin and I have had this, this conversation and, you know, Dustin's position on, on Bitcoin and gold is, you know, the money should not be an investment asset. Um, because people will hoard the money. My position is that in, in an inflationary monetary system, you're basically turning all the actual resources and assets like houses into investment vessels, which in my opinion is way worse than, than people hoarding money. If people are hoarding houses as an investment vehicle, then you get massive homelessness problems and people that can't afford to buy any of the houses and things like that. And, you know, you can say that, you know, they should just build more houses, but that's also increasing demand on all of the resources required to build houses. So those those prices are also going up prices for lumber and concrete and all that other stuff. So it's well, yeah. lumber went up because of the former uh, president's idiot uh, trade war. <laughs> he started attacking the foreign sellers for offering us lower prices. It was very confusing, but that's a lot of times that's that's you see, and a lot of times I feel like that's kind of where I I come to my uh, opinions about these things is that if an idiot like that can get into a trade war and cause the prices to go up like that, I would rather have the prices go up because we're actually housing people as opposed to just these petty trade wars and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, lumber yeah. skyrocketed because of because of because of him. And um, well, I think austerity leads to situations like that. It just kind of builds situations like that. But it's also uh -huh. the the you know the demand for housing right now because it's so hard to get a, an affordable house. That's not going to help the situation. I'm sure you know the well, trade I, war obviously created that problem as well. But the housing situation didn't help. You know what? What can government do about it? Right. And I'm not going to. Let me just say this. I would get rid of the income tax, the payroll tax, the corporate tax. I would do all that away. Um, I would tax land and I would create incentives for developing land, using it environmentally sound. Um, I, you know, um, I, I have a question for you that I don't think Dustin has ever answered for me. So maybe okay. you can give me an answer. Because So the MMT guys say that taxation is a way of preventing inflation from getting out of control. So it essentially takes takes money supply out of circulation into the government's One hands. Method, yeah. Right. It's a method. Um, I, I disagree with that because I don't think that when the government takes tax income, they just burn all that money and destroy it and never use it. I think they use that to spend into the economy. So is it the case that they actually do destroy the money that they tax from the economy or what am I missing? Yeah, fun fun functionally, it's a deletion. Like going back, why did you know the Mosler's business card example? Why is why why are they collecting the, the the business card at the door? It's not to spend; it's to get you to do something, get you to want that business card. So it's, it's a it, it's, you now need that business card. Yeah, but um, you can't get somebody to like, do here's something the thing. unless you spend it. You got to spend it to get them to do things, right? Well, you got to de you declare the tax liability, right? Now people need the currency. 
and then government spend. So the funds to pay taxes and buy government securities comes from government spending or lending. But it still has to start with spending. So here's here's the thing about that uh, analogy uh, with the guy at the with the gun at the door, and he he wants you. What he really wants you to do is to help him clean up after yourself before you leave. And in order to get you to do that, he is kind of coercing you to do that. We agree on that. I don't think it's kind um, of. There's a gun at the door. Well, well, but here's the pretty thing. Blatant. Pretty blatant. Here's the. Th- Here's the thing. I don't think it's coercion if I'm uh, holding you accountable for things that you should be doing already. If I'm holding you responsible for your impact on this classroom, it's not coercion because I'm just keeping you accountable. You, but, uh, as you should be anyways. But also, if, if, he, if he creates too many cards... And people can leave every day and not have to do that work. Um, so taxing those back and then tearing them up leaves a shortage, making sure that some people are going to need to do the work to get more of these things. And uh, basically causes, creates unemployment yeah. whenever we do that. And um, so... For me, for me, it's more of a way to keep, it's not, it is seemingly coercive, but where, where do we draw the line between being held accountable or responsible for our own environment? Like, imagine right now, the problem is not a guy with a gun at the door. It is Mother Nature literally banging on the door trying to get in. And... So, I mean, we're going to be coerced one way or another, even if the government stepped out. Dustin, I like your argument, right? But it's coercion, all right? They're using violence. (laughs) You don't pay that tax bill, um, things are going to happen. Now, do we, we don't, you know, the, the, it takes, you have to be completely defiant. You have to be committing fraud for the government to put you in jail for, for, you know, some tax violation, right? Um, they, 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 they don't want to put you in jail. They want you to comply. Um, so they work with you. They'll put you on payment plans. They'll do everything they can to avoid having this, you know, you end up in prison. Now, if you're Wesley Snipes, you go in front of the judge and you say, Hey, I don't have to pay this. I'm a sovereign citizen. I'm not a, you can't tax me. You know, yeah. They're going to put you in jail. <laughs> you got to beat that down because that, 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 uh, that, you know, more people believing that because more people will follow that that um, the thing that you need a credible tax regime. They have to know that if they cheat, there's going to be consequences, right? Um, so, so the, the tax, the, the man at the door with a gun, that's a pretty good analogy though, right? That gets that point across. Okay. Um, I, I get that. And, and um, so, you know, as, as far as like, you know, now, val- now, value theory and economic theory goes, there's, you know, value, for somebody to value something, you know, to motivate them to do something, they have to get some type of utility in exchange for it, or you can impose a disutility on people, and then they have an incentive to remove that disutility you imposed on them. I I get that that's the system we currently live in. My question is just, like, I I would prefer a system that doesn't require all of that stuff, 
because it seems like everybody agrees that this is like a necessary evil. It's kind of icky, but that's just the way things are done. In my view, something like Bitcoin, you know, is a lot better than using this system where you might get put inside a cage if you don't comply. And, you know, you have this uh, central authority that's telling you what's good for you and what you got to do. And they want you to do things. So they impose disutility on you so that you can remove it. What, why is it that you guys think that that system, which is the current one we have, is better than a system that doesn't require all of that stuff, which I think everybody can agree is pretty bad? As I said, all that stuff ends up happening one way or another. Whether it's imposed by the government to hold us accountable or whether it's imposed by the next, the biggest gang of, of thugs that come trying to uh, control your real resources. You're just b bypassing. You're, you're trading in one thing for another. Yeah, well, another thing about Bitcoin, Chad, is like, dude, it's just, why do we have to destroy all these freaking resources and consume all this electricity and all this stuff just to, to mine a coin? Now, I get that gives it its, um, uh, by becoming harder and harder to mine, it becomes, you know, more difficult to get and, and thus, you know, its value increases, whatever, but, you know, it's increasing relative to the dollar, right? So, um, you know, Bitcoin is inflating, right, in, in the amount of dollars you can get for it. Yeah. Uh, the worst side of that is, is it's deflating, right? Uh, but the uh, Bitcoin is deflating. The dollar is inflating in terms of Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, um, but yeah, like you know, um, why do we have to? Like, I don't, dude. Like, dude, if we keep going with Bitcoin like this, like. Uh, you know, where does it end? Like I was reading some article today, like some environmentalists take it with a grain of salt. I, I don't know. I didn't read the article, but it's talking about how Bitcoin alone is going to cause a 2% increase in temperature. <laughs> you know, I was like, what the? <laughs> against Bitcoin. I mean, I do think, I do think that, you know, if people are using it as a store of value, I, I prefer they did that then with uh, using it for illicit transactions. Uh, I am worried about anti-terror laws being, you know, um, you know, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, Get an end around by using Bitcoin and by using really not just Bitcoin, but the whole blockchain idea, right? Where, you know, there's anonymous people transacting. Uh, but, you know, you got the drug trade involved there. We, UTD, we had the, the Silk Road guy, right? Using Bitcoin, sell, I don't know, heroin. Yeah, I mean, we, we could definitely do a, an entire episode just on like defending all those points against Bitcoin for sure. But I guess to like, I think we have done that episode once or twice already. But um, the to boil it down, it's like to me, what incentivizes people to want to use the Bitcoins is uh, it gives them a utility. They want it to go up in value. They value that. That's what attracts people to Bitcoin. Whereas the U.S. dollar, what what incentivizes people to use the U.S. dollar is to remove a disutility. Because if they don't use the U.S. dollar, they can't pay their taxes, and if they can't pay their taxes, then they can't work, then they can't survive. So it's like, I don't know, it's like a positive and a negative. It's like obvious to me that this one that just gives you a utility that people want is better than the one that has this, you know, gang group of gang members that's imposing a disutility on you to force you to use their their money 
Well, I think part of one of my biggest problems with Bitcoin is I don't see it being very useful in the production of things. How many things are really produced using Bitcoin? There, if like in a in a deflationary currency system, your actual real goods and services aren't valued like they lose value over time as the money becomes more valuable it seems to me like that's a put off to actually producing things i might as well just hold on to this money that's always going to make me more money than spend it creating a thing to sell that i'm just going to continually have to sell for less and less and it's not ends up not being worth it to make and sell that thing uh, well yeah i I, th I don't think it works that way i mean i think the uh the end of the 19th century is a good case study to look into because the production went so high with the with the gold as money and things like that and the real wages went up crazy production went up crazy all those kinds of things but i think what actually happens is people it allows people to accumulate savings and capital and once you get to a certain point you start investing that capital into things and then you start inventing new technologies and things like that so you know like if you got bitcoin and you've been holding it for 10 years and suddenly you've got three or four million dollars worth of Bitcoin. At that point, you're like, all right, what am I going to spend it on? And maybe I'll start a company, you know, like once you start acquiring, it's kind of a stimulus in its own right. Deflation is it stimulates spending because you've got so much savings that just accumulates on its own. And rather than just watch it accumulate more and more, you'd rather do something useful with it. And I think that's what happens. If you right, look at it's, historical examples, but it's it's spending and purchasing focused. It, I, where's the utility in actually producing? How much? Like, I would like to see data on that. What is produced using? Who pays for labor in bitcoins, and how does that function? Does it work pretty I mean, well? It just be, yeah, I mean, it's just be investing. Like, you know, if I bought a bunch of bitcoin, it went up in value, and I start a company and hire a bunch of people to start some new product idea that I have. That's how it spurs production. Well, I mean, you still need a public sector, enforce the laws, protect people, their property, right? Yep, yep. And their property. Um, how is the government going to provision itself? You can't, you know, it's going to tax Bitcoin. Like, um, you know, how is it going to do that? How is it going to know what the income is if it doesn't have access to these blockchains? So well, I mean, uh, to be honest, I'm. You, you said you dabbled in anarchism. I'm. I'm sort of in that camp philosophically. So I would. My my perfect system would be one of like um, decentralized governance with like governance service providers that people voluntarily pay for their services or something along those lines. But I think if we're going to keep the system we have now, the honest way for the government to fund things is just direct taxation. So yeah, you can put a sales tax on whiskey or gasoline or whatever you want and fun things that way and i think that's a more straightforward it's actually a more democratic way of of funding the government because then you actually have to go to the to the voters and you know ask for the taxes to be raised and they know that they're going to have to bear the brunt of those taxes so they may revolt they may say oh no we don't want to go to that war if you're going to have to pay these high taxes to fund that war Whereas if you're just allowing the government to print as much money to pay for the wars they want, 
the, the people don't really get asked. They can just go print as much money as they want. There's no democratic vote over it. And I do favor a war tax. And I think it would decrease these adventurary, uh, adventurary impulses that we have. Um, yeah, but I just mean like funding government through inflation is it's it's fundamentally less democratic than just funding government with direct taxation. All right. So having to go to the voters, which, look, I mean, you know, we want a system where the government is held accountable to the voters. Uh, but the thing is, is like some people are going to pay the tax. Some people are going to. Um, receive the income from the government. And th this is actually what the institutional conservatives, James Buchanan, wanted, right? The democracy and deficit, that whole book. That was, the idea was that when government runs deficits, it's creating these constituencies that um, uh, are, you know, the, the constituencies that are receiving income are outweighing these constituencies that are um, paying the tax. And, and, you know, and basically the, the, um, what, what's the, they want that to be in balance because again, they're, they're anti-government. They don't want government spending. Uh, they want to police it. They want to make it efficient. Um, but, um, you know, again, you've got this whole other problem with the decision to save, um, you know, people, if people are saving income, that is being spent by the government well you know that that's what drives the deficit there is no deficit if there's not this decision to save and that's why i wanted to go back to this earlier is the current system that we have with the banks it's the market that is kind of deciding you know who gets a loan it's the market deciding the money supply rather than the government and even bitcoin bitcoin yeah it's decentralized and all this stuff but it has a formula to how much bitcoin it is it's still centrally spent. So, so, um, um, is that, what, what is the, what is the mechanism? What, what do you mean that the, uh, the market is deciding the money supply? Like well, demand for loans, people wanting loans, people make up the market, right? What, it's not like basically it comes down to banks compete over deposits, right? Well, they compete. They compete for deposits because it's the cheapest source of reserves. And the reserves are so that it can um, you know, basically fund withdrawals. Um, and, and we require banks to get deposits so that they can be banks and make loans and whatever. I mean, I, I would. Right. Go ahead. But it seems like I mean, I guess the the critique from like the Austrian perspective is that this is an unsustainable system because. It seems like the, the banking system requires people to continue to borrow more and more, and the economy itself requires people to borrow more and more. People and it just borrows it less. A, people have to borrow less when the government spends more. See, because when the government doesn't spend, when the government runs a surplus, that puts the people in a deficit. And when the people are in a deficit, then they need to borrow to make ends meet. Yeah, and eventually, so the source of bank capital is government deficits. Banks have to put up capital before, to get the charter, right? And that capital is the first in line for losses that, that are on the books of the bank, right? You know, I think it's like 10%, right? Um, and so, so 
you know, no government deficits, no bank capital. Eventually, the whole thing collapsed. I mean, it'll take some time, right? Because we've ran up twenty-seven trillion in deficits, but you know, eventually, <laughs> I mean, it'll be an awful society. But yeah, the banks would eventually have no capital to to operate. Yeah. Um. Well, I guess do you, do you think that the the demand for loans by the public is affected by the the interest rates and the the willingness of the banks to give those loans out i mean from my, from my perspective like you know i'm constantly getting mail where they're offering me all this debt with all these amazing zero percent interest rates and stuff it seems like they really 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 are trying to get me to get into loans it's not like i'm begging to get loans you know so isn't it isn't it kind of you know you could say it's the market creating the money supply, but it seems like it, the banking system itself is trying to expand the money supply by offering as many loans as possible. And the main way that they do that is by lowering the interest rates. Well, so if, yeah, there are interest rate sensitive borrowers, but the main thing is, is, is what their, their loan, what their requirements are, the collateral required. It's a much bigger determinant in, in what the uh, public uh, borrows. Um, uh, than, it, than interest rates in themselves. Now there are interest rate sensitive borrowers, uh, but uh, typically when you cut the interest rates, um, it, it's deflationary because you're taking out away interest income. Um, and um, you know we have that backwards. We think we think raising interest rates is deflationary, and uh, that this is a huge issue. But um, um, you know, they're raising the cost. When you raise the interest rate, you're raising the cost of funds and you're immediately adding income in the form of these interest payments. The government's a net interest, excuse me, the government's a net payer of interest. So you're adding income and you're raising a cost. That's an, that's inflation. Okay. Like you know. you're adding income for the bank. Well, interesting savers, um, uh, people that okay. government securities. Um, yeah, yeah. As we always say, like the people, the whole, like the, the whole issue of having this system where we, the government has to sell a security to cover, uh, you know, cover its, it, the TGA that the because it can't borrow directly from the Fed, right, uh, or can't run deficits on its um, account at the Fed. Um, this is a form of basic income for rich people, all right. Um, um, now maybe there's reasons to continue issuing government securities. You know, Warren says, "All right, fine, we'll just do one month bills. That's it." Um, but if you if you were to give if you if you were to have the FDIC offer unlimited deposit insurance, you could basically do away with any reason to have government securities, in my opinion. Right? Because what government securities are, they're they're the equivalent of FDIC insured deposits. It's the same government is insuring it. Um, um, but the, these deposit, the, this account, this government securities and their savings, that's all they are, is it's just savings accounts at the Fed. They offer this, they offer an interest rate. So so it's money that that you know earns money uh, versus a deposit, which is you know zero percent interest. Um, and then you got people talking about negative interest rates, you know, God forbid. But uh, um, um, well, um, <clears throat> one thing. Um, so, like at the top of this podcast, you you, you made the point that MMT um, is sort of like a, a series of observations. It doesn't 
it doesn't, you know, advocate really anything, but it does seem like there are things that MMT does advocate, for instance, okay. people getting rid of people. Using people so like MMT is not necessarily married to the guaranteed uh, jobs system or it's not, it does seem kind of married to the idea that the treasury and the fed are essentially one entity um, instead of the fed being independent of the treasury, which seems like the way the system is set up is that the fed is independent of the treasury, but the way that they're currently operating is as though the treasury or the, the fed is the, the servant of the treasury's wishes. And it does seem like MMT kind of propagates this idea that that is how it's always been. And that's how it should be, which seems like a prescription to me rather than just an observation, but I don't know. You, you, so you wouldn't say that there's, there's any like prescriptions through MMT. Like MMT does seem to say that, you know, we can spend, the government can spend more money than it currently is. That seems like a prescription. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, a Republican could look at MMT and go, all right, cool. We're going to cut spending and we're going to cut taxes much larger. You know, um, you know, we're, you know, you imply your own policy preferences within this lens, right? Um, I forgot which there's a point I wanted to make. Um, I wish I could rewind real quick. Sorry. Um, the Treasury and the, the Fed being... Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, interest, the Fed targets an interest rate, right? Um, it doesn't target the money supply. It targets an interest rate. And if the Treasury is doing things on its own without coordinating with the Fed, the Fed is not going to be able to target its interest rate. Whatever the Treasury does, it's going to screw it up. <laughs> and, um, and so they have to coordinate. They have to work together in order for the Fed to achieve its objectives. And you, you know, you give up interest rate targeting. Okay, well, you know, day to day, it's going to get kind of weird. But, um, um, you know, that 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 interest rate, the targeting, you know, that that helps create the certainty in the economy. You can measure investment projects, look at their costs, look at their return. Um, if you don't know the interest rate, it's going to be day to day. Going to be a lot more difficult. Going to have you know, a lot of yeah. weird stuff that goes down. Right. Um, okay, but, that that makes sense to me. But I guess I'm thinking in terms of like if, if the treasury, you know, I don't know, somebody gets into the treasury and that they want to go crazy and the, the Congress approves all this spending on things that, because the Fed also has as the uh, inflation rate that it's got as a target as well. So if it thinks that the treasury is going to be spending all this money into the economy that might cause inflation to go way higher than they want it to, my understanding of the way the system is currently set up is that the Fed can just refuse to fund to, you know, the, the the treasury's wanting to do that. Um, Dustin seems to say that no, they're they're essentially married. The Fed does whatever the treasury wants it to. No, they both do what Congress wants them to. That's that's what I. That's yeah. You know, they're both they're they're both a product of Congress, and Congress can wipe them out just as easily as they created them. Yeah, but I mean, like, so if Congress approves all this wild, out of control spending that it wants to do, and the Fed says, well, that's going to cause the inflation rate to go way higher than we want it to go. So we're not going to help you out by by um, monetizing that debt or however you want to fund that spending. 
I'm saying that the Fed currently, the system, the way it's set up without the Congress changing the Federal Reserve Act or something, is the Fed has that power to just say no. no is so, that, do we all agree on that? So what they would do, if that's how the Fed feels, right, and, and there's, you know, people who will try to put it in mass and, and, you know, say there's this reaction function by the Fed. So if the Congress wants to create all this money, the Fed again, erroneously, it's going to say, okay, cool, we, you know, that spending is going to cause inflation to go up. And that means we need to raise interest rates, thinking that that will beat back the, the, the inflation. And, you know, what... And you're saying that that would cause more inflation? Yeah, that'll cause mo most situations... Now, now, interest rate changes can be ambiguous because, you know, you know but it, it's not black and white. Um, but given the Given what you know, given with the economy that we have, yeah, it's it, raising interest rates is going to feed into inflation. Raising the cost of funds, you know, adding interest income into the economy. Um, so if that doesn't work, it would probably want to increase taxes, right? Uh, so to be to be back the inflation, they would want to raise taxes. Well, that would be my least favorite way of fighting inflation. Um, you know. Really want to figure out where where the source of the inflation is in the economy. Uh, it's on a structural side. You want to address that. Um, it's clunky and and kind of miserable to raise taxes to combat an inflation problem caused by some other side of government, right? Like so so yeah. you you know I wouldn't want to do that. Um, taxes are there to get the system going and 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 and. Uh, Create that disutility. Uh, well, yeah, and, and, and but also establish the price level, right? At, at uh, and um, you know, but if you're constantly um, having to raise taxes to beat back inflation, um, you know that that's not where I'd want us to be. I want us to be no, because that seems to go back to like the way the the conservatives have always viewed the government working in the first place. You got to raise taxes to increase spending, kind of thing. Yeah, at full employment. A lot of what is said on the you know neo neoclassical fixed exchange nonsense. A lot of it's ap applicable at full employment, right? When you're not full employment, but really uh, full deployment of resources. Um, you know where to for the government to spend more. It literally has to reduce somebody else's spending to create that space. You know, then then you you have a you're in a situation where yeah taxes have to go up. In order for the resources to be free for government to spend, and and um, you know, but you we never had that type of economy. <laughs> I, I think the Austrian view is that in, that inflation does the exact same thing, just more in a more subtle way. Whereas you know, if, if prices of assets or something is going up because of the increase in the money supply and increase in demand, then you're still funding that by decreasing somebody's purchasing power. So it's essentially the same function as direct taxation. It's just more ambiguous. But um, I wanted to to ask you, um, so my main critique of the MMT system is, is essentially the point you just made about the full employment. So it's, I've got two points. The first point is that there are many different sectors of the economy, some of which at any given time are at full capacity, others of which are not. So in order for the government spending to not result in inflation in any given sector, 
they would have to be targeting specific sectors that are not at resource capacity or, or full employment. The other thing that I, I think is the problem with MMT is that essentially the problem of MMT from my point of view is that it creates this, this immense risk of resulting in very high inflation and then imposing high taxes because the inflation goes high or something like that. Some, some, something bad involving inflation. Um, I don't and, think we can get that high inflation if we tried. So, right now, anyways. I mean, you have to, you'd have to have just total madness. To, you know, to, you know. I mean, we. Then I mean, it's, it's essentially confidence, right? It's like it, it's a well, subjective thing that happens in people's minds when they lose confidence in the money. It loses value, and then you get inflation. And if you know they're printing tons and tons of money, and money becomes less valuable in people's minds, then you could have a one of those situations where it's gradually at first, and then all of a sudden, you get high inflation. But the value of the dollar doesn't come from how many dollars exist, really. It comes from how many products and resources are there to buy. It will always have value as long as there are things to spend it on. And people as, want. As, yeah, as long as people want it. Um, have to pay taxes with it. Yeah, so you could raise taxes to increase the demand for the U.S. dollar. Well, people want to save, too. People want to save in the dollar. They don't just, you know... You want to retire. They want to buy assets. You know, they don't. But it's not a good financial decision to save dollars because they're depreciating over, like, by design, like, at least 2%. Some say 10 to 15% is the real number. But it doesn't seem like a good idea to save U.S. dollars. Half of your value will be gone in 10 years or something. But um, it's, it's, it creates more of an incentive for you to borrow money because the money you borrow today is going to be worth a lot more than the money you have to pay back later because the value of the money is going down. Uh, I think it actually creates a disincentive to save rather than people wanting to save. But, I mean, right now, there, nobody saves. It, nobody can afford. I mean, what do they say? Like 90% of Americans can't afford a $500 unexpected expense or something. Yeah. Well, that's, like, there's no savings going on right now. Talk about, you know, 330 million people. Um, I mean, we have massive inequality, right? And that's also one of the reasons why the deficit's so high is because the rich do save. They they do pile on in these these giant savings pools. But you you have all these tax incentives to save, um, and then you have you know like you know pensions and all these institutional uh, funds that um, are are collecting yeah. savings and trying to get a return by you know uh, investing. Yes, right. An inflationary system to avoid having your savings eaten away by the inflation, you have to put your your money into some sort of asset, like buy a house or get in the stock market or something that's that's increasing in price rather than the money itself, which is falling in uh, in value. But um, the point I wanted to make a second ago is that when I ask people generally, okay, why is this not going to result in in inflation? The answer is is typically that the money that the government spends into existence will be used more efficiently than the market will use it, such that it'll activate these unused resources and increase production to offset the inflation that would otherwise occur. And that never sits right with me because, you know, governments are famous for being inefficient and overspending for things and 
that seems like a recipe for inflation. For so sure. is so is the private market. They're every bit as wasteful as the government, and every bit as inefficient as the government. I mean, look at what's happening right now with Texas Power Grid. <laughs> they wanted to be unregulated. They didn't want to be part of the federal grid because they didn't, you know, want the regulations restrictions. And right now, it's just a nightmare because they weren't ready for something like this. <laughs> a little too close to home, Dustin. That's kind of I, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, <laughs> but it's uh, you know an irrelevant point there. <laughs> That's the point. I mean, there's all kinds of waste in the private sector. Uh, you, you go into a business these days, and they just run horribly. And um, you know, so I so I like to push back a little bit on the whole efficiency thing. But the thing is about efficiency is like, you know, you know, you know, you know look at productivity. It's like sales per hour worked or something. And there's more sales. They look more productive. <laughs> Now they could be just as efficient at their job, like at the restaurant. Productivity goes up when there's more sales, when there's more customers, right? We could be way less. We could be wasting food and, you know, burning every other person's dish or whatever, um, you know. But it, you know, it looks like we're, um, um, you know, more productive because there's more sales, you know, per hour worked or whatever. So, so some of these forms of measurement aren't aren't the best, but. Um, the thing about you, it's like, look, man, when you, when, when there's a patient that's dying on the table from, from anorexia and we're pumping the, you know, the nutrients into their body, like, you know, complaining about the fat that's going into their body while they're dying, you know, what the hell, like, you know, we get, we got to make sure that they have enough nutrients to, to live. If, you know, if a, little, if a little bit of fats involved there. Well, okay. Well, that's an, that's an acceptable thing. Right. So it's, it's not. You know, hopefully we don't have to get to a point where like the, the economy is just at a maximum state where virtually all resources are being consumed and used. There's nothing spare going on. It's going to be a very weird world. <laughs> um, it'd be hard to change. Like, you know, we don't want necessarily complete, full, maximum resource usage, right? Um, and I don't. I don't even really by the the idea that we have to get to full resource usage for the inflation to start showing up because well, we don't bottlenecks but also government can just create inflation by indexing you know by their contractual arrangements by raising interest rates like without the private sector doing anything and this is something that i've been drilling into the heads of people online for years now since i fully understood what warren was saying and and um so, but everybody likes to say like oh it's all about like you know resource utilization going up too high no it could happen but it's still government is validating that all right like in, in government like you know indexing israel had a big deal with indexing um they had huge inflation rates and they indexed everything and like wages went up and like everyone was happy but they were having to use more currency but um but you also get like the stagflation in the 70s where you know, yeah. obviously we had, you know, 15% inflation, which was insane, but we also had like tons of unemployment and things like that. So it doesn't seem oh. to always correlate. Well, the, the, that particular period was driven by a foreign monopolist, Saudi Arabia, raising their, raising the price of oil, um, partly ideologically driven because they're pissed off at us for helping Israel. I forget what war. I think a lot of people forget that a lot of these things are caused in large part by political breakdowns, sometimes more than economic breakdowns. And, yeah. And, but 
to the point about stagflation, the, go the government deficit was much smaller back then. <laughs> All these people saying, oh, the deficit causes inflation. I'm like, okay, you know, like, where's it, where, you know, where's it at? And using the same measurements over time, right? You'd expect that now inflation would be out of control, CPI, right? Uh, but um, yeah, so, so there's almost no correlation. And Reagan's uh, National Council Economic Advisor, um, look up his name, uh, William, I want to say Niskanen, but I think that's the Reagan. Hold on. You know how Reagan came in talking crap about the budget deficit, um, you know, but they came in and quickly realized that if they were to, you know, go ahead with um, this guy. Yeah, Niskanen. I was right. So so Niskanen was one of the biggest leading libertarians of the 70s. He was, I think, the founder of Cato. He ends up as um, Reagan's. Uh, chair of the National Council of Economic Advisors, and he uh, was tasked with going before the press and explaining, um, you know, what, you know, let, let, hey, everybody calm down, we're going to run deficits, but everybody chill. And he basically said there's no correlation between deficits and interest rates, no correlation between uh, deficits and the uh, uh, inflation rate. Simple relationships between deficits and inflation is as close to being empty as can be perceived. There are no necessary relationships between the deficit and money growth. Evidence doesn't support the assertion that deficits crowd out private borrowers. That, that you know, I, hopefully we destroy the crowding out argument. I mean, it's that's a forty-year argument that's you know, been you know, dead and buried. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's a Krugman, uh, uh, Keynesian. What are we looking at here? CPI. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wanted to. It does look like there's. There's a correlation between CPI level and, you know, the 19, 1933, the domestic gold standard and the international gold standard, 1971, and inflation. Yeah, but, you know, again, get, getting back to the whole point about government, inflation being caused by the government. This should be an argument that all the, liber you know, everybody on the right, libertarians sort of Take note of, right? But inflation is caused by the prices the government pays when it spends or the collateral demanded when it lends. The government causes inflation. Yeah. Now, people say, oh, well, the sellers, they, they don't, they're the ones that are raising prices. They've got monopolies, yada, yada. All that's true. That could all be part of that problem. But until it's, the government agrees to pay those prices, it's a mute point. So, right. Yeah, I agree with you, but it's also whoever the government gives money to. Like, if the banks get a huge influx of money and loan it out, that can cause inflation. Or if, they're, the if they're giving, how out, does the government get money to the banks to lend out? The through the Federal Reserve buying oh. up assets from the banks, essentially. Well, the, you know, the Fed buys approved assets, so you know, buys the uh, federal finance agency debt. And in government securities now, but they it didn't. It, ch it changed in 2020, right? Uh, in the pandemic, they can buy all kinds of stuff now. Yeah, I mean, they went back to kind of the weird stuff, but um, yeah, I mean, 2008, you had Maiden Lane. They bought a bunch of there was some junk in there, but right. So if the bank has a bunch of assets that it can't sell and would otherwise have to take a loss on, then the Fed buys it at the price that the Fed sets. The bank gets a whole bunch of money it otherwise wouldn't have, and then can 
put that into the economy through loans, which would cause inflation. Well, or well, the government can just put the hand could the, put the money in the hands of people through like stimulus checks, and then the people can cause inflation by the demand that they express with the money that they get from the government. Okay, so 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 um, um, uh, what the hell are you going to say? The, so the the so yeah, the government can spend, it can deficit spend, and that can end up as bank capital. And then that bank capital, the, the whole thing with bank capital and loans almost works like the fractional reserve system that you're talking about, right, in the beginning. Uh, because you need, you know, to make, you know, you have to have a certain amount of capital to make loans, right? So you increase capital, you can make more loans. Yeah. Um, but but uh, um, um, when, Let me show you this other chart real quick. I just want to get your, your take on this because, like, these are the charts I look at, and it looks, like, really clear to me that, that uh, inflation is very correlated to the to the increase in the ability to to create money through the Fed or the government, but uh, this one is cumulative inflation. Um, so if you you know they say two percent per year, but if you look at the cumulative inflation, it's it's pretty straight up from 1971, and this only goes to 2015, so it's probably shot up a lot more since then. Um, and this is the kind of thing I look at and I'm like, you know, the, the the situation we're in now in the economy, like all of this homelessness and all of these, you know, banking crisis that we have and the craziness with the home home situation. This is all because, you know, this is the, this is the result of having, you know, the central bank and the government in control of the money supply for a hundred years it doesn't seem like doing more of the same thing and like a accelerated well, again, pace is going to be a solution to the problem we're currently in. It seems like we should do something different to get out of this. We don't have a, you know, the, the, the central banks, the government doesn't set the money supply. Yeah. I, yeah. I agree. It, it, that floats, um, you know, however you want to look at it, you know, the, it's, it's, uh, it's market determined it's market yeah or loans the banks are a big part of it determines the savings attempts so you know we we you know you know people that love free markets all of a sudden this is a problem <laughs> well i mean the the, yeah. the fed and the treasury have a big part in it because they can can they can affect how much the banks you know the bank's capital how much they have available to create loans with and they also yeah. affect the interest rates for the banks which incentivizes people to take out more loans. So there, there's a big uh, part for the government and the Fed to play in this. It's not like pure market functions. Like if it was just a pure market with no government intervention, I don't think we would be at 0% interest rates today. <laughs> I think we would agree on that. Yeah, well, we can't, you know, what, you want a market without government? No, I just, I just think that, you know, we should have a money supply uh, we should have a money that is not controlled by the government. We should have a a money that's that no one has any privileges over. That's just a fair money that every that's available for everybody to use. But nobody can decide how much is going to be created and who's going to get that money that they create. That seems to cause a lot of these problems. I also think that a lot of the problem stems from the banking system and their you know incessant need to create loans by loaning money that they don't actually have loaning money into existence that they create out of thin air that seems to cause 
a ton of problems in, in the economy. So, you know, my two solutions would be stop banks from doing that. Like, I don't have a problem with loans, but loan money you actually have, not money you created to loan. And then the second thing is the money we use shouldn't be controlled by anyone, even the government. Like, we wouldn't want Amazon in control of the entire money supply. And in my view, the government's basically just a different kind of corporation that happens to have a monopoly. And we yep. don't want them to have the control over it either. I don't really buy the argument that they have the ability to more efficiently. I mean, maybe it's the same. Maybe they're just as efficient, inefficient as as the public, as the private sector. But I do not think that they're more efficient with the money they spend than the private sector. So I don't. So like, here's the thing. Like, you want the government on a. Um... Uh, to, to use a foreign currency, you want the government to be Greece, okay? <laughs> you know, they give up your sovereignty, accept another currency. Um, well, I guess the term in Bitcoin is individual sovereignty. So you just give the power of the, you know, the money creation power to the people in general. So it's well, again, not Bitcoin is not exactly that, right? It's a, it's a program. It's got a formula, and it it kind of it's been set, and and it's it grows over time, and yeah. And no central party has control over the supply. It's yeah, but in nobody my controls. Mind, but in my mind, that means that nobody's sovereign in that system. There is no sovereignty in that system. Not that well, everybody's you're, sovereign. You're uh, you're sovereign in the sense that nobody can, um, can you know deny your monetary transactions over the Bitcoin blockchain network. It's like a it's a self governing system. It's governed by the protocol. Also, itself. nobody can dispute them. Yeah, nobody can dispute them. But, so, well, no, it's, but it, uh, it's a foreign nobody currency. Nobody can control them, but at the same time, nobody can dispute them. And that causes a problem. But there's no them. Mind. There's no them. There's nobody that can be corrupt and do something wrong because it's just a computer protocol that's distributed throughout the world. So there's no like central point of failure that can, you know, become an asshole and start doing crazy stuff and screwing people over because they're in control over it. The beauty of it is that nobody's in control of it. And that's kind of how I think the money supply should be. I don't think like, like we might, we live in the U S so we might like the idea that the U S has the power to create money out of thin air, but then you've got all these other people in the world that don't live in the U S that depend on U S dollars and they have no vote over the U S government yet. The economy that they live in is tied to the policies that the U S government is making that's why there's a lot of calls right now for people to switch to a different currency for the world reserve currency other than the U S dollar, because it gives the U S a huge amount of power and privilege over all the other current uh, countries in the world. And they don't like that. There shouldn't be one country that has control over the world reserve currency. So I think the best solution is nobody should have control over the money. Money should just be a fair medium of exchange. But that also, but that also to me means that there's no fail safe. There's nothing to keep it from collapsing entirely. At least with uh, the U.S. dollar, a fiat currency, there's you know something to keep it relatively stable and to provide a fail safe in case it happens to, you know, start to to uh, generate inflation too quickly or anything. There's things that can be done to stabilize it. We can put in place automatic stabilizers 
like the federal jobs guarantee. But there's nothing like that that could save Bitcoin. Once it decides it's going to fall, if we're all using it, we're all screwed. Well, if we're all using it, it's not going to fall. It would, the only falling that could happen is if everybody stopped using it. So it's kind of a chicken and an egg thing. So doesn't the same apply for the U.S. fiat dollar? It it does, but there's no there's no uh, mechanism to prevent the uh, arbitrary inflation that could happen through runaway debt creation and stuff like that. So it's, no, but debt creation in itself doesn't create in inflation. There has to be other things well, happening. They, no, no, no. It doesn't itself create inflation. It creates a deflationary uh, impulse or whatever. But the to prevent the next recession, to prevent a Great Depression from happening again, the government has to continually increase the supply of money to prop up the the debt system. If they don't and deflation starts setting in, then we go back into Great Depression territory and the entire world economy collapses and stuff like that. So the option is keep printing more and more money or allow the entire world banking system to collapse. And I don't think they're ever going to let the banking system collapse. So it seems inevitable that the amount of money they have to create to keep this system of debt going has to exponentially increase more and more and more. And that, to me, is just a recipe for eventual really high inflation, possible hyperinflation. So Bitcoin doesn't have that problem because there's a limit to its its supply that nobody has control over. Here's like, you know, all right. You know, how is the government going to provision itself? You know, like that's the thing, like on this. This foreign currency, foreign to it. Right. How is it going to provision itself? Well, it's going to have to tax to spend. Because it's now it's not a currency issue, or it's a user. Yeah. And now, now you're setting up, I think, a very uh, possibly dangerous thing because now it's now it's going to tax, and um, you know I, I prefer low taxes. Uh, you know, and and I don't you know I don't agree with everything that we do. I don't agree with this monetary system. I I didn't design it right. I just can can observe it in and how it operates. Um, but yeah, they're they're. Inflation is multi-factored, but at the same time, there is this this last step that comes to government paying those prices or not, or or you know, um, you know whatever the collateral decides when it lends. And you know, if you have an issue with inflation, then you got to start there. And and you know, in the '70s, I mean, I I would I don't know if you have a chart still, but you know, you had a lot of indexing going on. That's a recipe for inflation. Okay, as the price level increases, incomes just keep going and going and going. You had the, the oil booms in the 80s. You had a lot of lending fraud, SNL banks, you know, bidding up assets. Um, the 90s, uh, you know, the 90s kind of started off slow, but um, uh, we got back into that sort same sort of situation. Um, you know, as that, you know, incomes have still risen, you know, with that, with the, the higher price level, right? And, you know, really you got to look at it like, well, are people better off today than, than they were, you know, whenever part time you started looking at it. And, and, um, that's not exactly fair because, you know, like hell, like the poorest of poor are still eat like Kings, you know, in the 13th century. Right. So, um, um, so, so, but, you know, 
right now measured inflation still is two percent and it, it's hard for the fed to get to that right um cpi yeah, actually right now it's 1.4 i believe yeah they can't the they the can't year. even get to two they can't get the like um so so well, i think a large part of like you brought up hyperinflation chad i think a large part of like every instance of hyperinflation that we can point to came in part because of countries giving up their sovereignty and taking on large um, debts denominated in other currencies. Yeah, and, and also and being backwards, like in needing to import toilet paper, you sell oil to get toilet paper. That's, you know, that's Venezuela's deal. You know, and, and you talk about having a problem with the deficit, but what about every time in our history we we've run a surplus? Seven times in our history, six of those came with a depression, and the last one came with a financial crisis. So, yeah, I mean, yes, I totally agree, and I also agree that the the uh, inflation rate right now is relatively low as far as the CPI numbers that the government gives, which I don't think are exactly accurate, but whatever, it's it is what it is. It's not higher than it than it has been recently, um, but I think all of that is the result of the massive amount of debt that's currently in the system and is growing day by day, that creates a massive deflationary pressure that threatens depression. But that, that amount of debt is only possible because of the amount of new money that's being created through the loans of the banks. So well, the debt you know, creates a need to get the dollar to repay the debt too. Yeah, that's the deflationary pressure. To repay it is the deflationary pressure, but they want people, you have to get an expanding amount of debt. The amount of debt has to keep growing or else people start paying off their debt. And then you get a decrease in the supply of money, which creates deflation. It makes it more difficult for people to pay off their debt. And then you get all these problems. But I'm saying that the, the reason we have so much debt is because to prevent the next recession, they are you know, pumping money into the banks to make the banks give out as many loans as possible to prevent this from happening. Well, it doesn't really work though, right? <laughs> um, I mean, and, and by the way, what saved the banks after the 2008 crisis wasn't what the Fed did. It was what the, the regular, regulators did. It's called regulatory forbearance. Um, a bank that is inadequate in terms of capital, um, they're supposed, there's a law, it's called prompt corrective action. They're supposed to take the bank over, put it in receivership, find new leadership, figure out what was going on, recover as many assets as you can for the previous uh, um, uh, owners and the depositors. Um, and, and, and we didn't do that. You know, we, we foamed the runways. We spaced out how they were going to have to write down these loans and, and we fined them for felonies. You know, and you and I did anything like that, we'd all be in jail. But we 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 find these these corporate felons, and repeatedly, like there's no end in sight. Like they can just keep they, they can just keep. Wells Fargo got in this, you know, because they were they were really crazy. And, you know, they were creating false accounts for customers and kept doing it. And, um, you know. Yeah, but I mean, they did buy up all that all those bad mortgages, and they bought them at the prices that the banks asked. I mean, that certainly helped the banks. Um, well, uh, I mean, they could just, you know, not <laughs> not foreclose on the banks and not not arrest anybody, but 
in order for the bank to stay solvent, the Fed and the Treasury or whatever had to buy up all those mortgage-backed securities and stuff that were bad and make sure that the, the banks were still solvent. Well, again, the, the, Fed, did, the, the Fed didn't buy uh, private label mortgages um, in, the, in, the, in, in the, the fallout of the crisis. Um, you sure? Well, I mean, the maiden lane, I, I don't know what's all in that portfolio, but yeah, I mean, they, 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 they're legally, they can only buy certain assets. Now fed, they have emergency powers and weird stuff. And look, man, you're gonna have to talk to some expert in that, but they, they, um, they, you know, they can buy federal agency debt, which is the, the federal finance, you know, home loans. There's, you know, I don't know, like three different agencies that make home loans or loans. And, and then they can buy government securities. And a QE is buying government securities and some fixed amount of, of you know mortgage securities, but that's that's agency debt. Um, so so label debts aren't you know they're not a thing anymore. <laughs> as as, as it occurred in two thousand six, right? Forty percent of home loans are being issued under this sort of banner. And um, you know uh, you know going back to that era, you know what we were fighting at the time was everybody was blaming Clinton for the CRA. Um, creating some sort of nonsense when it was really the private labeled um, uh, mortgage securities people were going to the federal agencies and saying, "Hey, look, we can accomplish your 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 housing goals. We can increase minority housing. We can do all this stuff, but we can do it without regulation." And and these are AAA mortgages, and um, you know, so 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 there what there probably is some definitely some sort of um, regulatory relationship between the, the the private label people where they were allowed to do this because it was thought they were helping the economy. And and so in, in large part, government's responsible, not just for not fixing the mess, but for initiating it. But that's not Clinton and the CRA, right? Like a lot, a lot I mean, this thing took off under the Bush administration. Um, yeah. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, look, if you, if we're if we're really concerned about you know inflation, we've really got to be concerned about what resources we're using. Um, you know, going to a fixed exchange or a foreign currency, making the making the government a currency user, um, you can't guarantee that it's going to be able to provision the private uh, the public sector. And then if you can't guarantee that, then you can't guarantee that the government's going to be able to enforce property and contract rights. You know, legal system's not going to function the same way. Um, so, so, um, um, you know, and, and what do we like? You know, let's say Hitler invades again or whatever, and it, like, what we're going to have to go to the Bitcoin people to get the money, and, and what? You know, maybe, maybe some of the Bitcoin people are the Hitler people. Like, you know, you're, you're yeah. I mean, I think it would be much more difficult for Hitler Hitler to to do what he did if he was constrained by a uh, money like Bitcoin instead of just printing as many German. Why, why is wanted. Hitler constrained? Hold on. We're, we're constrained, but why is Hitler constrained? That's an assumption. So like now you're adding assumptions. So like, <laughs> so like, like if we're, if we're using Bitcoin as the world reserve currency instead of, uh, Oh, I think I see what you're saying. So you're saying Germany, something like that. If they went crazy, they would just, impose a tax, create their own money and then inflate it at yeah. will. Like, yeah. So, so yeah, I guess it is a form of war in a way. Yeah. So like, I, I just think like you should focus on like, all right, look, man, like, you know, we're not, 
houses are ridiculously priced and I totally agree with you hundred percent. You know, there's a huge constituency though of voters that like the situation because their assets are going up and it's going to be hard as hell to, to institute some, some come to Jesus with that. Right. Politically, like, you know, um, but um, over time, I think we can kind of get a handle on this and in the, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm at the point where I just think the government, I, I hate saying this, but I think the government should just start building homes for poor people. Not poor people, but, you know, I two agree. or three family, homes, uh, you know, uh, single family homes, three bedrooms. We need the government to be building the damn houses at this point because, you know, and there's reasons we don't, the private builders aren't involved in all that. There's reasons. There's economic reasons. Do you think, the, do you think the government building homes like that, do you think they would be, uh, do you think that would cause housing prices to go down or up? Down, because you're you're adding this supply. And the people that own a home right now that are trying to sell it at these inflated values, they're going to hate this policy. Hate so, do you want the government to also take over like the lumber industry and and all those things? Because they don't need to take over the lumber industry. They, they buy the lumber. If if the yeah, if you're just buying the lumber, then the government's going to have to outbid all the private companies for the lumber which will cause the price of lumber to go up. And then all these other builders are going to have to raise their prices to pay for the raising, rising well, price of lumber. And... What, what, what's going on in the lumber market? I don't know. It seems like a, an in, uh, like an infinite regress almost because it's like the solution to the housing problem is the government to just start building houses. And then you're going to create a problem for maybe in the, the lumber market. And the solution to that would be like, just have the government start producing lumber. And then, you know, it just keeps going until the government's just I mean, producing they got, everything. They got trillions in forests. All right. I'm not, but I don't, look, I don't like this idea. I don't even like that I proposed it, but I, I don't have a good solution unless maybe we can create tax incentives to home builders. But I, I honestly, I feel like we need to get, you know, um, uh, um, you know, I, I do like land taxes. I do like luxury taxes. I do not like income. I do not like corporate. And I do not do not like payroll taxes. I think they all need to be eliminated. They have way too many enforcement costs. I think with land taxes, you can really start to get a hold of promoting responsible development of the land rather than the speculation where people hold land, they sit on it, and they wait for other people to develop it, and then they sell it at a premium. Um, and and um, um, and with luxury taxes, you know, I'm talking about, you know, yachts and, you know, toys, boats, stuff like that. Again, a lot of people are going to be pissed off at me. Voters, voters also are voters. But, you know, there, there's these um, luxuries out there in the economy that divert a lot of resources that in a situation where we're short, you know, you really want you want to free those up. Right. You know, like. You know, we got people sacrificing over here with their lives. Uh, Mr. Boater, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to pay more taxes to, 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 to ride that boat. And the idea of the tax is not to raise more revenue. It's to free up those resources. So the effectiveness of the tax is judged not by how much revenue is raised, but by how much resources are freed as a result. So like, you know, you tax cigarettes, right? You don't judge it by how much revenue is raised. Tax, you, you judge it by um, what the smoking rate is. You actually decrease people from smoking. The goal is people to stop smoking. That's why you raise the tax. Now we, you know, you know, we we're all 
backwards and you know we have all sort of dedicated you know we, we take some of this cigarette sin tax money and we promote it towards public health and you know the state legislators they feel like they've done a great job blah 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 and you know smoking rates are basically unchanged among the poor uh they, they continue to pay it's like a tax on them so either it's not high enough or you need to rely on something else um to to get the results that you want in public policy and and you know it could be going after the producers the sellers the gas stations um you know but um my inclination fundamentally is conservative i tend to look at a problem in my brain this is how it works what's a conservative solution all right and or what would what would conservatives say and then you know i work through it and i'm like ah that's a, that's that ain't gonna work and then i follow on the progressive side I start with the conservatives and then I always tend to, you know, work my way to understanding the what the progressives are saying. Um, so, so, you know, building houses is not my first instinct, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated with, with, the, with the situation. Um, you know, and another thing that, that affects housing prices is, is um, road, uh, highways, roads, uh, where the jobs are located versus where the houses are. Um, houses that are located closer to the jobs they tend to be, they cost a little bit more or, uh, cause everybody wants to have a shorter commute. Right. One of Warren's first proposals after 2008 was to lower the speed limit. I don't even remember what it was, but I think he wanted to lower the speed limit to like 50 or 35 miles an hour. And then you could have cars that aren't, you know, we have cars that are built to run at 140 miles an hour on roads, you know, twice the speed limit. Um, but you know, now you wouldn't need that. You can have lesser horsepower engines and safer vehicles on the road. And, and, um, um, it would kind of, um, um, uh, uh, reduce some of this, uh, price differences in houses between where the jobs are located and where they're not, um, you know, that where you know, the further away you live would become a lot cheaper, um, We'd, I'd have to ask more to understand, you know, explain exactly how that policy would work. Um, it's probably one of his controversial things, but, um, but yeah, I mean, and, and look, we got to look at how the banks are making these loans, um, what their goal is. Again, they're agents of the government. What is their goal? What is the point of all this? Um, you got to focus on that. Um, you know, it, I, I, I'm frustrated with the banks too. Um, you know, Rohan Gray's proposed this, um, uh, uh, this public banking act, right? Where he wants to create multiple avenues for local state governments to create their own public banks and, and, and set up the infrastructure so that these, once these local governments and states and entities create these banks, like they'll be accepted in the, in the normal banking system. He's kind of creating a federal roadmap for that to happen. And like my point with him was like, dude, we have ten thousand freaking banks already. Why do we need more? Why? Who cares if they're public? Why do we need more? Why aren't the banks that we have doing what what this agenda? And his point is, is like, look, the, the for profit motive is fundamentally going to corrupt, you know, their what they do and how they operate, and, and you know, that that is a source of disagreement, right, between it, within the you know MMT world. Although I you know, I'm, you know, my position is a extreme minority because, you know, most, most MMTers are going to, you know, really support what Rowan has to say. And, 
And it's not like I just think it's the worst idea in the world, but like we have freaking 10,000 banks. Like the government tomorrow could put a gun to their head and say, do X, Y, Z, or we pull the trigger. And I realized that like politically that's not going to happen. Um, but it, it just seems it, it's upsetting that we have to create all this stuff from scratch, create, waste all these freaking resources to create public banks, just to create, to have a, give people access to the system. Um, so they're not being fleeced by these private banks. And I, I, you know, it's just, it's a very frustrating, you know, world we live in when, when, you know, you're forced to do something like that. When again, the banks are agents of the government, you know, like you need to put a gun to their head and tell them to do X, Y, Z. Now what is X, Y, Z? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, we got to talk about that. We got to figure that out. But, um, you know, I, I, you know, love to see more money thrown at home builders, right? <laughs> Maybe we get the federal finance agencies to you know throw more money at home builders. And, um, uh, but you know, home building and, and and that that you know that level of development. I mean, it's a multi-agency. You know, there's so many stakeholders in the communities. Uh, I mean, what you're talking about is developing land, you know, building homes. Hopefully people want to live there. You know, how, how do you know that? <laughs> how do you know if you build it, that will come, right? So, like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated process. I'd be very uh, um, leery of anybody that claims to have all the answers in that type of situation, on, that, on this part, you know, what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could not agree more on that. And, and um, guys, I'm sorry, I got to bail. It, yeah, I mean, yeah. thank you so much for, for coming on, man. This was a great conversation. I think I learned a few things. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. You had a lot of good stuff. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not um, – I understand where you're kind of coming from, Chad. It, it, um, it, it takes a while to really understand m and and, and – and, um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm fearful of government. <laughs> you know, I know government can be abusive and wasteful and inefficient and scares the hell out of me, you know, and that's the whole thing. Like we want to make it function and to behave. Um, so, so, you know, I think, you know, people that come from the right and people that come from the left, so long as they have like that same shared, like, Hey, we're Americans. We need, we want this country to be great. Like, yeah. These types of conversations. Hopefully some good can come out of it. People can understand each other and you know, stop all the bitching. So totally. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks for uh, joining us on uh, in the driveway. Uh, we were talking Charles Hayden. Thanks for coming on Charles. Uh, you know, it was a good hey, time. I'll come on again. You know, we just got to schedule it, man. Make it easy for the wife. Yeah, for yes, sure. Sir. Definitely. All right, man. Everybody all right, stay safe. Go. Stay warm. We'll catch you next time. Peace. Cool, if you've gotten something of significant value from what you just heard, please consider supporting the show by visiting our Patreon page or copying some sweet merch at our website, inthedrivewaypodcast.com. Thank you for listening. And remember, love really is the answer.